if you ever get sentimental or feel good about like, oh, I just love Twitter or I love Instagram, they don't love you. Like they don't like you. You they don't feel anything. You are fodder to them. Like you're nothing to them. Your data is everything, but you are really nothing. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Social media. The ever-present, most pervasive form of discipleship in the world today, don't you think? I mean, last week, we began a conversation with internet expert and author Chris Martin about his book, The Wolf in Their Pocket. It's all about the formative, malformative power, I should say, it holds, and the dangers that it exposes us all to, especially teens. If you're on social media at all, especially if you are a parent or a leader, you need to read this book, seriously. In part two of this conversation, we look at some of the difficult issues and implications of social media. From discernment to authority, anxiety, and even free speech, it's a broad-ranging conversation, and it's especially important for those of us who are older. Because as someone who came of age during the birth of social media and iPhones, Chris gives us a window into not just technology, but also a way of thinking and being in the world. This is, once again, a fascinating conversation that is going to challenge you. I guarantee it. And at the very least, you're going to gain some new things to chew on. But as we've said before, conversations like this can only happen because of listeners like you. We're looking to raise an extra $4,000 each month to be able to provide you with the quality content that you have come to expect from Apollos Watered that will help you water your world where you're at. If you are one of our watering partners already, then thank you for partnering with us to water the world. If you have not yet become a watering partner, then do so today. Simply click the link in your show notes and select the amount that works for you. With that in mind, let's get to my conversation with Chris Martin. Happy listening. So masterfully demonstrated over the course of the last few years that anxiety is a skyrocketing among teenagers, but especially among teenage girls, is, is not because of body image or whatever. I mean, those are all, all kind of can be factors, but it's this idea that we're carrying the high school hallways around in our pockets at all times. And to use it and an idea from a different book, um, there's no backstage where we can just retreat and kind of let our hair down and be ourselves. We must always be out on stage under the hot lights performing for people, or we feel that way. Now, adults feel that to some extent, but teenagers feel that in a whole other way because of the sort sort of social pressure to perform. Um, and so I think if we want to look at, you know, if you're in youth ministry, this is something you definitely need to be attuned to. But I think, it, like I said, I think it pertains to adults as well. And I think we make a mistake if we relegate this matter to the youth room uh, entirely. And so I think we should be aware of social media as like the high school hallway. We carry it around in our pockets at all times. And we feel this sort of pressure to perform, even if we wouldn't acknowledge it. I think a lot of times we do feel it. Oh, un, you know, no question in my mind. That's what it is. Even that's, I, 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 
as I said at the onset, that's the pushback that I, I've had towards social media. There's a part of me that goes, is it a necessary evil in our modern world? How do we use it? Because you also mentioned that it's not amoral. It's not. And I know I'm talking to our editor, Kevin, and he, he's maintained that for some time. He said, I've heard so many people say it's a tool. And he'd say, no, it's not. It's, 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 a, it's not just a tool. It is an, it's not amoral. It's definitely some type of moral is being created and, and packaged within that because we are moral beings. And we're infused with it, but it's actually playing to our basis desires of narcissism being known. And this idea of getting the click, the dopamine rush, I mean, the, that's been obviously communicated. But before we go any further in that, you mentioned something that I wanted to come back to. You mentioned the backstage idea and you mentioned the church as backstage. I, I'd never seen that concept before. At the same time, I went, all right, if I did that, if I would do that at my church and I'd say the church is backstage, that would be so counterintuitive where we are as a culture today, because it is a show in some capacity, whether it's the preaching oration, the music, the worship, or even the cadre of people coming in and their clothing and their Sunday best. I mean, I'm in the South now and I was astounded. I'd never seen hats, women wearing hats on a Sunday morning. And suddenly I did. It's not that much. And, and again, part of it's a cultural vestige and I'm not trying to diss hats, but there was something that was so shocking to me coming from a Midwestern background that I'd not seen. It, it, it seemed to attract eyes, attract attention. So I thought, to, I, I wondered, how do we help people then transform and move to this backstage idea when other people are competing down the street? And this is terrible, but they're competing for those, again, same people to get them in the door so that they can hear the message. Yeah. It's a great question. And for anyone who hasn't read the book and maybe is confused by this backstage idea, the whole idea is that the backstage is the place where you can just be yourself. And you don't have to worry about how you're sounding, how you're looking, how you're being. Nobody's going to judge you. In, in a healthy home, when you're a teenager, the backstage is your house where you can come home from trying to impress your friends or trying to make your teachers happy. And you can just be who you are. And your parents will, you, you'll feel unconditional love and be accepted, even, even if reprimanded, you know, but, but you'll, you'll feel the warm embrace of people who love you. And I make the point in the book um, that the church should be a backstage for, for us. It should be a place where we can be ourselves and not be afraid. That doesn't mean we shouldn't get called out on sin and all of that. Like uh, that should happen. Like we should, you know, that, that should be the case, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't feel the need to not be ourselves or feel, feel unnaturally polished in a church community. And I think, um, what do you do? Yeah. And I, I felt that same disorientation as you a little bit when I, when we first moved down to the Nashville area from, the Midwest where, yeah, I was not going to a church where people were, uh, you know, dressing in hats or other more flamboyant apparel. And down here, that was certainly more the case. Our churches that we've attended haven't been quite that way, but I know it is very culturally a thing. And, and yeah, there's the showiness to it in a way, in a lot of our cultures that I think, uh, is interesting. And I think going back to, yeah, what do you, how do you do that? If, uh, if maybe the church on the street is doing the more traditional thing, I just, um, I think it comes back to this idea that I don't know who, who initially said this, but I, one of my bosses mm. at life years ago is who I learned it from is that you cultivate what you celebrate. And if you want to cultivate a culture where everyone is always perfect and the worship experience is entertaining, then celebrate those things. If you don't want to cultivate that culture and you want to cultivate a culture of authenticity and you want to cultivate a culture of being able to let your hair down. And you want to cultivate a culture of cultivation rather than consumption. Because we just consume everything today. 
And it, it's really easy to, if you want to have the biggest, most successful church from an, from a worldly perspective, from like a numbers perspective and a, and a building size perspective and an amenities perspective, then you, then you seed ground on the entertainment value in hopes that, okay, let's just seed ground on entertainment. And then hopefully through entertainment, we can teach them the good news of the gospel. Okay. But when you, when it's then time to push people to cultivate, to serve on Sunday morning with kids or to get involved with community group or to repent of sin and they don't do that, maybe recognize that you've cultivated a culture of consumption and not repentance and cultivation and, and participation. Um, and I think it's really important for us to, to recognize that what we, that we will reap what we sow in that regard. And so if you, this is where mm-hmm. I say, if you don't want to play, if you don't want to win that game, play a different game, kind of like our church that I go to. And, and I don't mean to say our church is perfect because it certainly has its issues. And I'm not like patting myself on the back because I'm not like a pastor of our church. Right. So I have not decided anything that I'm describing. I just happen to, I, I lead a community group and volunteer in our student ministry, but I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not patting myself on the back. So let me say that. Um, but I think what I've seen at our church is the healthiest version of Christian community I've ever seen. Now, our church is not large. I think it's, I mean, it is maybe by some standards, it's maybe 250, 300 people, I think. Um, and we have a lot of kids who are quite young. Um, and I'm sure we'll plant, I, I know that we'll plant before we get to a 500 person church, surely. Um, so we're not a church that, you, if you want to be a church that cultivates community that's vulnerable and repentant and um, not interested in putting on a show, then you'll probably have a smaller church and you kind of have to, you have to be okay with that. Um, but if you, if you want a large church, that's definitely not the way to go because people don't like repenting of sin and changing their ways and going to a place that has a less than showy worship experience. But so I don't know. You brought out something that I find that is very interesting. You're talking about the unique factor and not, not the unique factor, the authenticity. Talk about that authentic factor. Mm. You're a different generation yeah. than I am, but your generation, are you a millennial? Millennial. Okay. Yeah. So in speaking with a lot of different leaders, we've noticed, of course, these trends and traits of different generations. One of the things that I've noticed is the desire for authenticity has increased among millennials and especially with Gen Z. And as we're yeah. looking at that, that seems to fly in the face because so many people are worried that if they are authentic, they lose people. However, I think what COVID has brought to the surface and what our culture now is advocating for, and you reference this in the book, I'm going to use different language, but our social credit score is very low right now. And it's not socially advantageous to be in the church in many parts of the United States. There are some pockets where I'd say it's a, what I call a high Christendom culture where the Christianity and, and, and it is a bigger factor. But in a low Christendom culture, it's really a, a not a pleasing thing. How do we help, though, our people move to this idea of not having the perfection, not having the performance, but cultivating the authenticity? Because that hopefully shows the true reality of our spirituality. I feel like I'm getting ready to do a whole like spoken word <laughs> as we're going through that. But how do we help people to be able to see that and these, these really harmful effects? Because we aren't going to become Luddites. We're not going to become Amish. Although I will say this, the younger generations that I'm seeing are getting off of social media, at least some forms of it. 
which is astonishing to me. I'm seeing people in yeah. their 20s going, I'm not doing it. Yeah. I'm not doing it. Because they've seen the harmful effects. They were the digital natives. They said, no, 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 I'm not going out in that anymore. I don't want that. So how do we help people to see this? And I guess yeah. what I'm really saying is, how do we reprioritize in our life and make friendship a, a priority, which you mention in the book, and go from commercial value in relationships to an inherent value? I know I've kind of bridged different chapters of your book there, but how do we go about that? Yeah, um, there's a lot. And it's hard for me to summarize all that because you're right. That is, those are each of those topics has its own chapter. I think you have to model this. Like if we're speaking to church leaders, you have to model this. Like um, when I was a kid, I mean, because I can only really compare to like what church was like when I was a kid, which was a very stereotypical Midwestern evangelical church experience, like Willow Creek model, slacks and sweater vests, like very, you know, like suburban Midwestern evangelical church, not fundamentalist, but also not liberal, like pretty probably politically and theologically conservative. Um, uh, but it was very polished. It was very clean. I didn't hear a ton of talk about, I never heard church leaders talk about their sin or how they had to repent of certain things. I remember being taught that we should do that, but I didn't really see it like model. Now it could be, I could be mistaken, but I, I, you know, everyone seemed to kind of have it together. There wasn't a lot of mess, you know? Um, and I think as a church leader, um, again, having led in student ministry, I've, I've been leading a student ministry since I was a high schooler in a few different church contexts and being in a church where it is very much not the case where everything is polished and messiness is very apparent. Um, if you want people to live authentically as church leaders, you have to do it yourself. Like you have to be willing to admit when you're an idiot um, and when you sin and, and repent of that. Um, and like our pastors all the time talk about like, yeah, I really have not been good at this. And I've had to repent to the elders and, and like, you know, I've had to ask them to hold me accountable in this or like, you know, various things where it's important for, for us as church leaders to not act like everything's okay all the time. Like I, we, my wife and I lead a community group. And when we have a really rough week in our marriage or with our daughter, which she's three. And so that can be quite often these days. Um, we talk about that. Like we, we talk about that during community group. We don't act like everything's fine. And so I think like, that doesn't, it doesn't mean if you share about how, how you've sinned or how rough your life is, that it's automatically going to get people to share but it's certainly not going to work the inverse. Like you're not going to get people to share about how rough their life is very frequently if you never do. And so I think if, if we want authenticity um, and real community to be bred in our churches, we have to, as church leaders, whether you're a lay leader like me or you're a staff leader, you have to take the first step in that regard. Like people can't see you as bulletproof and perfect because otherwise they're going to feel like they need to be. And so you need to just show like, you can be not perfect in a Christian and here's what that looks like. But how do we even do that with social media? Because social media, we offer up our best self to the world. We curate that yeah. content. Yeah. And if we get messy, people get nervous because this is not the avenue that you do that with. That's not necessarily the, the mechanism or the platform where you admit one's weakness because then people start doing weird stuff. And you actually reference this in the book where one woman mentions her messiness and then the pastor talks to her and she goes, that wasn't meant for you. I don't want my, my online life. I don't want the people in my offline life to know what's going on in my online life. And there was this, this distinction yeah. that was brought out. And it, it, yeah. how, how, do we, how do we work through this, Chris? How do we go through that? 
Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. And that that story is a harrowing one. And, and it was just one example of a few similar things where, yeah, a woman wasn't, she wasn't like caught in sin or doing something dumb on social media. She was kind of crying out for help because her life was in a rough spot and the church reached out and she got mad that the church reached out to help. Um, and yeah, she, she saw this distinction between, she kind of saw online life as a totally separate plane of existence from her offline life. And it was, it was really eye opening to them. And to me, I, I hadn't heard such a clear example of that. I, I think I, we see fruit of that a lot where people act like totally different people online versus offline, but I never heard somebody just so explicitly say that. Um, and yeah, this is a good question. I think, you know, um, I think a lot of times it, I have this weird perspective. It's, it's very non-traditional in how people act online being more authentically them. You know, a lot of the most common refrain I've heard about social media and authenticity over the years is, Oh, social media is just where we present the best versions of ourselves, And it's like our most curated selves. And it's like, we never share the bad things. And I'm like, yeah, I think that used to be true. And I think for some people on some platforms that is still true. I think of, Instagram and particularly like young women on Instagram in particular, like, I think that is still like present the most polished version of yourself. Like you're on vacation all the time or whatever, like everything is always awesome. And I think among a certain demographic and a certain platform, that is still the case. However, I think a lot of people are more unhinged and authentically themselves on social media than they are when they show up to church on Sunday. Does that make sense? So this, yeah, well, because I, I see what you're saying. And it actually reminds me, there was a something in the news today where a guy actually posted on Twitter about his wife cheating on him with his best friend. And he he went after it. Or people will put whatever political theory or conspiracy theory that they really believe. Yep. And they throw this kind of verbal, they post this verbal grenade and they get it, they, it elicits a response. And sometimes you're like, okay, that's a hoax. Like even me, I posted a quote, I'm a huge C.S. Lewis fan. And someone that I respect posted a C.S. Lewis, a scholar, well-known, posted a C.S. Lewis quote. I reposted it. And a buddy of mine who runs the C.S. Lewis Society commented and goes, um, hate to tell you this. And he's calling me out online. He's like, this is not really Lewis. Cause he goes, the CS Lewis mafia will come after you. I've learned my lesson. So I, I like pulled it and I'm glad that he, he called me on it, but I've seen so many people that would post stuff. They would never say, and, and yep. it, you know, they get more confidence. The whole picture of that video of the dogs barking at each other through the fence. And then they pull yep. the fence back and the dogs get really quiet. Yeah. That's what we're seeing. So that's what you're referring yeah. to there. Yep. Yeah. It's this sort of keyboard courage. And, keyboard and I think it's, courage. um, yeah. I like and I think, I think it's like, yeah, I, I think that the inverse has happened. Like, yes, people are sometimes less authentic online and are showing more polished versions of themselves. But I think the inverse is just as true among maybe a different demographic where like, I think in a lot of our churches, you could have a 55 or 60 year old man who's like showing up to Sunday school, maybe he teaches Sunday school. And he's like the, he's great. And he's awesome. And got to love uncle Bill. He's awesome. And then on Facebook, he's just like ranting and raving about how such and so political person is the antichrist and blah, blah, blah. And then he shows up on Sunday and everything's like, Hey, it's uncle Bill. He's great. How's it going, man? Good. Okay, cool. You know? And it's like, what in the world, which one is the authentic self? I think the church one is the more curated and polished one. And the one online is maybe more real. And so I think kind of both are going on where sometimes online you have people faking it and offline life is different and worse. And sometimes you have people showing up to church and everything's cool. And then online they're showing kind of their true colors. And so whichever one you're dealing with, I think 
what the ultimate answer is. And I don't say that as though it's a sort of silver bullet, but I think the right answer is kind of the same for both, which is you have to plunge both of those people into immersive offline incarnational community, period. Like Uncle Bill, who's posting political rants on Facebook and young girl who's on Instagram posting about how her life is always awesome, ought to be in community groups together pulling out their real selves a little bit more in, in community with each other and sharing about their real lives. Because if, if all those two people do regarding their faith is show up to church on Sunday, once a week, three times a month, and sometimes read their Bibles, it's like, who's getting to know them? Who knows who's the real perversion of themselves? Like what is truly authentic and who could possibly know that? And, and so that like, this is why, like, could we put such a huge emphasis on community group at our church? Uh, like you must go to one if you're a member. Like if you're a member at our church and you don't go to community group, you will be called in pretty pretty quickly and be like asked why you're not a part of a community group. Like it's just kind of, a, I mean, it's a requirement as much as anything is. And so I think like being a part of a smaller church community where like people know your name and can show up to your house in an instant if they need to and can watch your kids if you need to attend to something or have a meal if you have a kid or whatever. Like that kind of, intentional incarnational as i call it church community is vital it, it it pierces through the person who's more authentic online or more fake online in the same way because ultimately those people are not going to be able to hide and they're going to have to talk about what life is really like in in a community like that you're not going to get that when they're standing in the back row of church mm. singing songs telling the pastor how good his jokes are there's so much about the embodiment aspect of not I think of second and third John where he says, I've written to you enough in paper and ink and I long to see you face to face. That embodiment idea, I think is intrinsic to the gospel message that we can't do it apart from that. Even like right now we're, we're doing this via zoom, but it's not the same when you're in person. It's just not. And I'm not trying to say it is, it still conveys an image. I mean, you know, both of us, how we're dressed, how we're, how we're, we're talking, we're still trying to, we're very sensitive to that, which goes back to another part of your book where you mentioned discernment foster discernment, something that I find that is very much lost. However, let me put this caveat on it. Being online early on, let's say, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, but yet the internet was still newer. We were playing with it. I'm still not a digital native like my kids are. My kids are digital natives. There's certain things that I can see about the internet that they can't because they haven't been around long enough, but there's other things that they see that I can't. Because that's their world. That's the only world that they've known and they see that distinction. And so I think to Hebrews, where it says through the constant practice of discerning good and evil, it, it, we, we get this idea of discernment. Uh, we've had to make that decision. How can we practice discernment better online in a world of spin doctors, fake news, and we've had a lot of neuroscientists or neurotheologians on the show. So we talk about enemy mode, going into this enemy mode where, and again, the man who first employed you wrote about the outrage that's online and that, that draws, I mean, you even mentioned that in the book, conflict draws people, humility doesn't. Yet Jesus calls us to be hum, humble and not, not drawn into conflict unnecessarily for the conflict. As a matter of fact, we're doing the opposite. So how do we, how do we work these seemingly conflicting things out? in our Christian walk as we seek to go about to being 
ambassadors for Christ in the middle of this very strange online world? There's a million questions in there, Chris. I think I asked like four, but pick one. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> to the discernment piece, um, it's really hard. like I do a lot of consulting on social media strategy with churches and ministry and ministries and authors and stuff and have over the years. And usually it's about like how to be better at Facebook or, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I, you know, talking about discernment um, is always the hardest one because it's hard. It's like one of those things that feels hard to teach uh, because I'm, I'm the kind of person where I'm just, I'm kind of naturally skeptical. So like, I, I generally don't believe something until I read it multiple places. Like, you know, if it's politician said X, Y, or Z today, I'm like, that sounds kind of, sounds kind of bad. Did he, did he really say it that way? And then I like, you know, I like look at another place that I know might have a conflicting opinion about that same, about that same event. And like, if they reported the same way, I'm like, well, yeah, dang, you really just say it that way. Or, or like, oh, okay. That other outlet kind of reported it in a way that favors their ideological perspective. And I just like have, I have the discernment to know like, okay, you know, this outlet tends to think this way. So they're more likely mm -hmm. to leave that piece of context out or that this content's more likely to give this, you know, this outlet's more likely to give that politician benefit of the doubt. So they're going to make sure to provide the whole context, but maybe also in a way that sounds more flowery and favorable than the other one did. So the truth's probably somewhere in the middle. I have like the patience to do that because I hate mm -hmm. being duped. Mm -hmm. Like I hate being tricked more than anything. I'm going to be that parent. My daughter's 13. Who's like, I don't care yeah. that you did that. I'm mad that you lied about, it. you know, like that's going to be me. Um, and that, that's me already in life. Um, and so I just, I hate being tricked and like led astray. So I've, I've just kind of always naturally not wanted to be duped and tricked. And so I've always had a pretty high level of discernment. Um, not because I'm holier than anybody else, but more just cause I don't like being tricked. Um, but a lot of folks don't care about that. Um, and I think we've learned that just in how social media has worked out over the years that a lot of folks just want to be told what they want to hear and want to feel something. And so my biggest tip for like discern, having discernment on the internet beyond like, if you come across something that's controversial, mm -hmm. especially most people get tripped up regarding politics um, or even like matters of theological debate, let's say things that are, those are the two things that if I ever have the misfortune of accidentally clicking over to my Twitter timeline, I see people fighting about politics and theology. Um, if something, if you see something on the internet and you're like, wow, I can't believe that's true. You should say, well, maybe it's not. Okay. That's from this place. Can I find some place that would, you know, maybe disagree with that outlet and see if they report the same thing happen and see if they, if they both report the same thing, then maybe there's some veracity to that. If they report mm -hmm. different things, figure out why they're reporting different things and take like do the work. Um, but if you don't want to do that, um, or if you can't do that, just slow down. And this is like, I talk about this in the book a good bit, I think in that chapter on discernment. And I get a lot of this from Postman and his comments about like the evening news broadcast that like, I don't think we're made to consume the measure of the world's news via our Twitter feed. I just don't think we're made for that. I don't think, I don't, we're hit with like, if you use social media with any regularity and try to consume content beyond like family photos and stuff like that, where like, if you're trying to like read about the news, which a lot of folks do, we're hit with so much content so fast that we're, 
our ability to discern is just crippled out of the gate. And so you read something or you watch a clip on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram that makes you feel a certain way. And we're just so lazy consumers, going back to the consumer idea, we're just so lazy consumers that we just assume that's true because it made us it aligned with what we believed and we just move on to the next thing. But we haven't sat down to like actually chew and eat our meal. It's like we're going to Golden Corral and just eating and throwing up constantly or whatever. Like we're just not, we're not actually processing what we're consuming and considering it. We're just eating so quickly. We can't even, we can't even understand what it is that we're consuming. And so I attribute a lot of our lack of discernment and engaging on the internet, not only with like foolishness and certainly that's a factor, but also just with like volume of just like how much it is we're consuming. And so my biggest piece of advice, if you don't want to do the work of like investigating a, a claim that you see, okay, fine. If you're, if you kind of want to be lazy, then just consume less of it. And maybe that will force you to slow down. Um, but I, I have largely just gone to like, I don't, I don't look for ways to think via social media anymore. I don't know if that makes sense. That's a very vague statement. Like, I I have a couple of columns for Twitter that are for news, but like when it comes to what's going on in the political space, I'm only going to read things that are like factual that are like, I, I know are true and then come to my own conclusions. I don't look for social media to tell me what to think anymore. And maybe that's a step of kind of a basic step for folks is like, just don't go to social media for opinions at all. Now, some might say, oh, how can you tell? Okay. Well, that's where you have to do like the sort of like comparison of like who told it what way and who told it another way. but consume less and read more widely. Those are the two most base ingredients, I suppose, to maybe starting to be a bit more discerning. I was sure that it'll be easier to clear you from my mind. Struggle with dusty corners till we're filled with fatal bombs. Bomb, bomb, bomb. But let, let's talk for a moment about the, the cultivating humility aspect of things. I know we, we, I, I brought that up too. How do we help cult humility in an environment that's all about narcissism? You just have to uh, not care. Like the way you win social media is by like, if you think of social media, like a game, which I have historically, um, the way you win, like the, is by going viral, getting followers, perhaps making money via your social media presence or whatever. That's the way you win in the eyes of a lot of people. But then you have to ask yourself, like, is that a game I want to win? And if you do, okay. Then you have to ask yourself, like, how do you win? And I can tell you right now, like, I think, I don't know how many Twitter followers I have, like 2,300 or something like that. Um, if I wanted 23,000 Twitter followers, I could, I know how to do that. I could have 23,000 Twitter followers by Labor Day. I, and I don't say that to like, ah, look at me. That's that would defeat the whole purpose of what we're talking about. Um, but the point is, like, I know how to win the game, but I know that in order to win the game, I would have to do a lot of things that aren't worth winning the game. And I think when it comes to social media, and you think like this are you know these are platforms powered by narcissism and and putting putting ourselves at the center, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, like I know people who have effectively sold their souls to get massive social media followings because I mean, the number one way is to just become incredibly belligerent politically. Like 
If you want to get a massive social media following, it's very easy. Just become very mean about very controversial political issues to all of the people who you think will hate you for saying those statements. And you'll get followers like crazy. My question is, is like, is that a game you want to win? You know, like, is that, is that what you want to do? And the answer is just like, no, that's why, that's why I don't have 23,000 Twitter followers. I have 2,300 or, or whatever. If you want to grow a massive following on Instagram, I'm not saying this is the only way to do it, but one of the easy ways to do it is like, you post, post very, you know, like, uh, very like, sexual pictures of yourself. That's a very easy way that you could get a lot of followers. Like, especially if you're a woman and guys who are going on there for that kind of thing, you could easily do that. The question is like, is that a game you want to win? You know? And there are, there are other ways to quote, win the game that take more work and more effort and, and that sort of thing that I think are, are ethical. But some, the thing that we have to remind ourselves of is that the easiest way to succeed at having a social media presence are often things that we as Christians require strategies we would not be okay with pursuing. And so then you have to ask yourself like, what, what is the purpose of social media for me? And what do I want it to do? And is that purpose and per, and place in my life good to begin with? And that's where, if you don't have that level of knowledge and discernment, you have to have some friends speak into that for you. But if it is like, Hey, yeah, I just want to use social media to like help people, encourage people with things the Lord's teaching me or that, that I'm reading from other people then just do that. And then you'll get as many followers as are encouraged by those sorts of things or, or whatever. But if your goal is like, I want to get a massive following for X, Y, or Z, and I, or I just want to get a big following because I want to be famous. Well, there, I know how you win. I know how you win. And, and I don't encourage that. And I don't pursue that myself. And I, so how, how do you live online in a, in a place that celebrates narcissism and be humble? Um, is you don't have to play the game that it feels like the platforms are beckoning you to play. Um, you can just play the game you want to play and, and have your own goals for what that looks like. Well, even as our team, we've had this discussion because I know that if I made some post about progressive Christianity being of the devil, yeah, I, I'm going to get 10, 25,000 people. I just, I just know that yeah. I would. I mean, and our audience is nowhere near that big, but you just say that. And I've seen it. I've seen the, the yeah. people do it. You, you, you say something about LBGTQ or whatever you want to say, and people will just go crazy because, and I, I think you, I'm not sure if you mentioned this or I read this somewhere else recently, but if you want to go viral, it, lies go va- viral faster than truth does. Totally. And lies move quick. And this is why I think you also quoted Eugene Peterson's The Long Obedience in the Same Direction, or is, is that the title of it, which I think is an excellent. Uh, a long, yeah, yeah, a, a long a obedience. Long, in the same a long obedience in the same direction. Be- simply for the reason that Christianity is the long, hard road. The difficulty is, is when you see people that you would consider to be your peers that live in the same quote unquote area code that you do or the ministry space that you occupy, who are willing to use those methods and get that following and even possibly get funding. And you're in the marketing industry. And, and, and I thought it was interesting that you mentioned you are using a different set of measurables as you go through to be what is effective and what's not. But I found that in the church, that was becoming, becoming one of the, the drawers as we, we started developing criteria where there were, there were incentives for having so many people in your small group or church attendance or how many baptisms you have, financial incentives. Now they would say, this is, you know, we don't want this to become an idol in itself and it can't be. And, 
And Jesus promises reward, yes. But somehow I feel like if I'm getting the reward from you in a paycheck, I'm not going to get the reward from Jesus in my obedience. And But yet we see many of these quote-unquote larger churches being passed off as examples we are to follow because the end justifies the means and they have large crowds who will play to the, the celebrity pastor and leader who sells books and because they gain a following. And we, we do live in this world. You occupy space just as much as I do. That no one's going to want to, they're not going to want to take a manuscript from you unless it sells so many copies. It just, that, that's, that's the reality in which we live. The same here. People will measure the success of my show. How many followers do you have? And while it is, that is a reality, it can't be the only means of demarcation. So how do we, ju- how do we, how do we separate that? And what are the criteria that we do look to in order to employ to be biblically faithful and yet fiscally responsible? A lot, and we've had a lot of discussions of, about this over the last few years since I've been at Moody and on the pub board of like just how to tell what's a healthy following on social media and what's an unhealthy following on social media as far as like, did they get these things legitimately? How are they conducting themselves online? I mean, I know we've looked at proposals and and decided not to proceed because of how people conduct themselves online, even though they might have a ton of followers because maybe that's how they got those followers to begin with. And so, um, so all of these things are an important factor and we need to not get caught up in numbers, but we also not need to not just like shun numbers either. Um, I think it's the matter of recognizing that like, not all social media followings are created equally, even if they are the same in number. And we have to do a bit more deeper evaluation and discernment regarding how people get followings and what that really indicates. Mm. Those are some good words on that. Talking about that, though, that actually just simply transitions me into the understanding of authority. Is this person an authority? But understanding authority in the internet age, as you mentioned, all it takes is one person and a keyboard to bring down a government any longer. It, it, this is the, the world that we live in where institutions are losing credibility. The church is losing credibility. And now everyone, and this is what you're, you mentioned, the internet gives everyone an equal voice in a way that they perhaps shouldn't have simply because they, they lack the ability. They might use the shock value. These are the people that are the YouTube influencers. And you even mentioned that some of the kids today, there's a large percentage of them that would rather be YouTube influencers than they would be astronauts which my son was shocked. He's nine. And he, he said, I mean, he loves YouTube influencers like Mr. Beast, but he, uh, <laughs> he would rather be a NASA astronaut, quite honestly. And I'm going to, I'm going to continue to massage that. But how do we work through that and help our people to work through that when their understanding of authority is becoming so warped and shifted, even when they may not realize it yet? Yeah. That's tough. And in the influencer bit, I wrote about this recently, actually, that like, um, in one sense, like, I don't, I don't fault those kids who would rather be an influencer than an astronaut, because it's like, would you rather get paid a bunch of money to work on a rocket ship and go to space? Or would you rather get paid a bunch of money to make goofy videos with your friends? I mean, both sound kind of appealing. Didn't he do that? He was a NASA guy and then he used to do both. It's like, whoa. Yeah, he gets to do both, right? Like he gets to do both. He's he's living the dream. He's living the dream. The dude, the dude publishes one YouTube video a month and gets more views than anybody else. It's pretty amazing. He's he's awesome. He's great. Um, and he he's he's yeah, he's the picture. I would love to ride on him sometime because he's a picture perfect version of like what an ideal influencer should be, in my view. But that's a whole other conversation. He's just great. He's really great. And I think he's trying to do great things for kids and using his platform as an influencer not to promote foolishness, even like 
I don't find Mr. Beast yeah. to be yeah, I know what you a mean. problem, know what you mean. but it's just kind of like goofy and, and you know, whatever. Whereas it, it feels like R- Roper is doing some like constructive, cool stuff, you know? Um, and he, well, even his son, his son has aut- uh, like a severe autism and he brings him in. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. I mean, Mr. Beast is like some of the crazy stuff he does. And it drives me crazy because then my kids want whatever he hawks. They're like, I want a Mr. Beast burger. I'm like, dude, it's just a burger. Stop it. I, I wrote on him recently. You should go read what I wrote. It was, um, it kind of made some people mad, but it was also, I thought it was hopeful uh, if I could do say so myself. Because I think in, in if we can talk YouTubers for a second, in the realm of every popular YouTuber of the last five to seven years, Mr. Beast is like one of the first ones I would recommend a 13-year-old go watch um, compared to like the Paul brothers. Oh, they're Good horrible. heavens. Um, but like, bro, I mean, five years ago, they were bigger than Mr. Beast. Were, so yeah. like, um, so like, I, honestly, I'll take Mr. Beast over the Paul brothers all day. Um, but uh, I think, I think we need to pump the brakes on the philanthropy bit because I, I think, uh, I think he's using people as much as he's helping people, but that's another discussion. So all that's to say, um, what do we do about, about uh, authority? I mean, because we're giving people voices that shouldn't necessarily have <laughs> about, them. I mean, uh, even with Mr. Beast, he's a great marketer. Yeah. He's so done a lot of stuff out there. But I'm like, do I really want to yeah. see him get with his friends and, and go into some yeah. abandoned school and playing real life game of yeah. assassins? Or, you know, how many it can be on a desert island? It's like, I guess this is something that you come up with you're in high school. But it's not right, something right, that right. really is is helping cultivate virtue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, you know, I, I, I watched this dude. I, I watched, you know, I mean, his his squid game video is one of the best YouTube videos I've ever seen. Like, it's just amazing. His recreation of the TV show, squid game, the games and stuff. It's amazing. But it's like, do I like in five years, is this guy going to like, tell me what I should be thinking about some ideological issue? You know, it's like, it's like, yeah, he's going to become a a broader authority. And I think we've seen that across, you you have Instagram influencers going from hawking makeup to telling you how to vote in the next election. It's like, is this how I'm supposed to, what is going on? Well, Um, that's even, that's even what happened. I mean, taking it out of the internet world, but like LeBron James, when he started and then one woman said, shut up and dribble. And that got into serious trouble because here, I mean, because he's a, he's an influencer. Yeah. Right. And I think I, let me, let me say, I think all these people should be able to do whatever they want as far as advocate for whatever they want to advocate and things like that. But, but I think as, as viewers, we should ask like, yeah, because I appreciate how this dude shoots and dunks at basketball or because I appreciate the entertainment value of this guy's videos, do I need to like, do I need to go buy their food or, or subscribe to their ideological view on this thing? That, like, that's such a big jump, right? Like, I would love to learn from Mr. Beast and his YouTube strategy, but I don't need to tell him what I should think about the upcoming election kind of a thing. You know, I think we could... At, but again, a 13 year old doesn't know the difference between those things. And, he, and it, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to say that's just the young person issue, though. I think it's fair to say it's primarily among them um, about authority. Yeah. I don't, I don't like how it feels. It, it wants to, so like, I've always had authority problems. My parents would tell you, uh, and, it's, <laughs> and it's true um, because I, I'm just the kind of person who's like, okay, like your position doesn't matter to me, like prove you're worth listening to. You know what I'm saying? Like that's just kind of always how I've been wired is like, um, yeah, I know you're my mom, but like, tell me why that justifies me, you know, like listening to what you're saying here. Um, I was a joy. 
I, I was the, I was I was the kid. <laughs> that's when the yeah right came. yeah. I, mean, I was the kid. See, I was the real the uh, biggest reason I was a pain uh, is because I was the perfect kid at school and then super annoying to my parents. Um, so yeah, isn't that the for any yeah, kid? Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I love my kids. They're super <laughs> yeah <annoying>. right. Um, <laughs> and they would say the same about me. Dad, you're super yeah right. Um. So, so in some sense, I love the flattening of authority that the internet brings. Like, I really do love that to some extent. Um, Like, I think it's kind of cool. But at the same time, I think we all know how that can get really bad really quickly. Um, In that, like, just because someone says something, a lot of things can unravel really quickly. Now, I think this has sort of sort of started to tail off a little bit. Like, I've seen more pumping of the brakes regarding call it cancel culture on like Twitter than I've seen in the past. In the past, it was like, it literally would just take one person talking about how awful another person was. And then it's just like this snowball of like, before you know it, somebody's fired. And I don't see that like quite as much as I used to. And and I, maybe it's because I'm on social media less because my job doesn't revolve around it. But like, I don't, you don't see as many stories about like person is a jerk to somebody in a coffee line. It goes viral and they get fired from their job. It's like, you don't see that stuff quite as frequently as you used to. Um, And I hope that means it's happening less, but I think there is a sort of like, yeah. Yeah. Of like, Hey, maybe this is getting out of hand. Like I, I hope that we're going that way. I hope so. I, so I, I full disclosure, I'd started this Facebook group for Moody because I had gone, I'd gone to Moody. Years ago. So but before, yeah. before, like right at the dawn of Facebook, you know, right there when the sun was starting to shine, Moody wasn't on there yet. <laughs> and I started a Facebook alumni group for Moody. Didn't touch it for 12 years. Didn't do anything. And it gathered yeah. 1,500 people in that amount of time. Now, Moody started their own Facebook group, but I didn't even make a post. Every once in a while, I'd say something. Well, during right before George Floyd happened, um, I decided like when the pandemic just broke out, I think right around that time, maybe it was, can't remember, my, my timeline's messy, but it was before George Floyd. And I remember making a, a post and I thought, oh, I might as well put a cover photo on this. So I got this photo and I put it on there. And I, you know, just kind of banal questions like, hey, what was the best thing about Moody when you were there? What, what, what's a fond memory of fond professor? What'd you like in the cafeteria? That kind of thing. George Floyd happens. Somebody makes a post about George Floyd and kind of being up in arms about what's going on. And then someone says, hey, let's not talk about politics in here. And they said, oh, this isn't politics. And, and then it snowballs. And then people, like some people, remember, this is gathered 1,500 people. And many of them are older. I would say that they're, they're north of yeah. 65. And they're there for nostalgia. They don't understand the political ramifications. This is just not what you do. It's, it's just like the older generation. You don't talk about politics and religion. And even in your home, like if you come into my yeah. home, like you can talk in my living room, but you're not going to have a conversation with me in my bedroom. Okay. It's just, it's just not how it is. It's just how it's done. So they, yeah. they make these comments online and pretty hurtful things like younger people that are coming on that are more of, of Moody grad, that are Moody grads going after the person who's been out for 50 years. Very, and again, they're very much digital natives fighting with those who are not saying these very horrible things. I was so disturbed by the conversation that I saw because I'm the moderator. And I hadn't posted any rules because we hadn't needed any yet when I, and I started it and that was my own fault, you know, you know hindsight's <laughs> 2020. And so I made, yeah. I don't know if it's All a mistake right. or not, but one woman said, I couldn't even sleep last night because of the post that I saw. This is an older woman. So I said, okay, I'm deleting the conversation. So I delete the conversation. 
That was a huge problem. Because <laughs> people are like, where is it? Where is oh, yeah. the conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next thing yeah. I know, they're calling Moody racist. And Oh, yeah. And I'm like, what's going on? And I'm watching the snowball happen right in front of my eyes. Because for me, this wasn't what I created that, that for. This was for nostalgia, connection, and networking. It wasn't to be a political forum. That's not what I created it for. And so suddenly, Moody is being named as this racist entity. And next thing I know, oh, yeah, next thing I know, I'm on a Zoom call with the PR, I mean, the PR department. <laughs> and they're like, first of all, you did nothing wrong. This is a crazy time that we're in. And I said, here's the deal. Because I'm, I'm now spending hours. Like, I spent more hours in a 24-hour period on this group than I had in 12 years. And, and so I'm like, all right, what do I do? And I said, here's the deal. Either you take over the page or I delete it. That's just it. You, there's an alumni page now. It's not necessary. I, I, when I created it, that's not what it was for. They said, can you delete it? It, it? We have no right. You know, like, you created this, your own personal thing. I said, uh, no problem. So I go on there. The thing is, is because I created it, and I don't know what the rules are now, but I had to de delete each user individually from the forum. So I make an announcement that I'm deleting the page. This isn't the purpose of it. You know, it does it served its purpose. You know, some kind of vague, politically correct answer. You know, people are like, racist. I mean, they start screaming and screaming at me. I'm, I'm like, first of all, I pastored a multi-ethnic church. I, I mean, I hosted meetings that were talking about people dealing with racial issues and trying to bring it out into the church. and these type of issues, but yet people are labeling me that way. And suddenly I'm getting canceled and they know, know nothing about who I am. And as I'm deleting them one by one, you can just see that like, you know, it's like, like almost like blood trickling down the screen as they're being deleted. And this, and I had an intern from Moody <laughs> helping me. She started at Z and I started at A and we just deleted. But the point was it brought out something to me. I went, this is not the forum. Like it got to the point where it's like, now I don't want to say, and I know a lot of people are this way. I don't want to say anything to me. If it's cat videos and dog videos and what's going on with the kids, the graduation of mother's day, we're happy. Yep. And I, that's really great. And that's, that's a good perspective. And then I think Post, Postman talks about that regarding the TV. Basically he says that in amusing ourselves to death, that the television is best used as a medium for like frivolities, not a medium for serious things because it, it, it rips away the reverence. He, he has a whole he, Postman was not a Christian, but he was like sympathetic to Christians. Like he did a lot of, things with he partnered with christian organizations a lot that. yeah you actually mentioned that in the book too where he mentions i'm not a christian yeah but this seems to and he yeah actually he talks he has a whole chapter on televangelism and he's basically like hey i'm paraphrasing he's like this gospel seems like the thing of utmost eternal importance to christians and i don't really know that these tell that these tv preachers recognize that they're making that they're cheapening the message that they're communicating by communicating it through the television and running it alongside like, you know, detergent ads and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, he's like, he's got a point. And I think the same with social point. media, like as much as I think that, and I'm not anti-social media, I think social media is, can be used for good and can be helpful for ministry when used supplementally and in some like really tactful ways. I'm not anti-social media, let me say. However, I like social media best when it's used for sports and video games and things that are goofy and don't really matter rather than when it's used to like out people for terrible things and uh, all of these super heavy theological debates or political ideological debate. I, I think social media is best used for more uh, lighthearted things than more important things, because I think the things that are most important in life are best communicated about 
not through social media. And I think we rip away some of the importance and reverence that we should give deeper, more important topics when we communicate about them in the primitive means of social media rather than in more in-person and incarnational way. I mean, it's like trying to recreate the Mona Lisa with sidewalk chalk or something like that. It's like, you're going to debate about the Trinity on Twitter. Are you serious? Like, don't you recognize what that's doing to your debate? Um, it's severely inhibiting it. And I, well, you, you, yeah. So I think that like, I, you can't, I kind of apply that you to can't everything. engage with nuance, but uh, it, it's just words on a page. Yeah. And that leaves you the freedom to read those words, the way that you think it's being said rather than what it actually is being said. Right. And then people get into that kind of ad hominem arguments yeah. with one another. And it's just not conducive. Yeah. I used to get in fights on social media all the time when I was like just coming out of college and just getting started in my professional life. And, and I loved getting in theological debates on social media. And eventually I was just like, this isn't doing anything for me except making me mad and making me feel better about myself because I feel like I've bested somebody in like a, you know, a fencing match about a theological topic on Twitter or whatever. And I just was like, this isn't good for anyone. It's just making me feel better. But I was starting to be enlightened to how it was like, you know, it was like, just like, uh, shoveling candy into my mouth. It's like, oh, this makes mm. me feel better. Oh no, I feel terrible. You well, know, Mike, it's like Mike Heiser made a comment about this me. before he passed away, obviously, because you don't make a comment after he passed away. Um, but he said that he goes, when you when you engage online debate, he goes, it's not against the other person that you're actually debating. He goes, it's the comments that are being written. That's the ones you're reading the comments are the people that you're actually as your real audience. Is that yeah. do you think that's a valid thing or should we not even engage yeah. that debate whatsoever? Like, is there any benefit? I do not. So here's my personal policy. I do not get in any argument or dis discussion. But, uh, you can't win. With, <laughs> with, uh, that would mean I get in all of them. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> where's, where's the humility <laughs> chapter? <laughs> I told you my parents had a problem with me, man. Um <laughs> The, uh, no, the, I don't get in any, any, uh, disagreement of any kind, what, however level of heated, whether about who's the best NBA player of all time and why it's LeBron or a theological topic. I don't get in any debate like that on social media with somebody I do not know personally, period. Mm. I, I simply do not, I engage with people I don't know personally online, but only if it's like, you know, tweeting a goofy GIF in response to something they tweeted, or if they say, Hey, I read your book. Thanks for writing. And I'll say, yeah, thanks for reading, whatever. I'll engage with any, anybody, any stranger in that way, but I'm not going to disagree with somebody about anything silly or serious on the internet. Uh, that I don't know personally. Um, now if it's like a one, I think like exception I can think of is there are a lot of other writers about social media, especially like non-Christian ones that I kind of try to learn what they're saying and then translate it to like my Christian audience, if you will. Um, I will like comment on their stuff and say like, Hey, think about it. Like, I see what you're saying. Try thinking about it from this perspective. Let me know what you think. Like I'll engage with them, but I see it less as like a debate and more of just like a, a comment card from, you know, from someone. It, it, I feel like those things are a little bit different. Like I'm bring back blog comment sections because some people from those days may disagree with me, but I think like, frankly, more constructive conversation and debate or argument can happen there than in social media, because there's less of an instant 
nature to it. Um, and also the other, the other principle I have is if I ever do find myself in that situation, I attempt to take it private as soon as possible. That was my principle when I was running social media at Lifeway, because as long as you're doing it publicly, you're doing it in front of an audience and people are going to be tempted and possibly motivated to conduct themselves in a way to please the people who are following them rather than in a way that solves whatever disagreement and makes progress regarding any disagreement you have. Well, well, um, I, I know some, I know so some yeah. well-known theologians that got into some debates and one said, you know, he had mentioned this to a friend of mine and he said, I'm going to make a comment on this because this is going to drive thousands of people to my blog. And I thought that, that to me is very narcissistic. It, it, I, I, however, I'm still in that place where it's like, you want to get viewers, you want to get listeners, you want to get eyeballs, but I want it because I believe it's true. Not necessarily that I need to have a massive following. I mean, you know, Maybe it'd be cool if there was some type of verification system where almost like there was a social media manifesto and you got like a star and then people could vote whether or not you actually were part of that. Maybe, you know, that's something for um, Mark Zuckerberg and for Elon Musk to be able to do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> they're not going to do that. Yeah, right? exactly. But um, as we're finishing up our time, we've, we've talked a lot here. I do want to finish up and talk about a couple more things. If that's all right. Just kind of the last few chapters. I mean, we could talk about. Yeah. Uh, the, the sex chapter, but there's a lot more to that, I think, that you could find. But I, I want to talk about the stuff that I see a lot of people dealing with right now is anxiety. And you you mentioned grapple with anxiety and how much anxiety has been exponentially expanded, grown since the advent of the iPhone. And even, I mean, I'm not sure if you said iPhone, but the social media, the platforms that are there, it's definitely, especially among teen girls and you alluded do that. And I, I remember discussing this with Jay Kim. He said, I'm going to venture to say that in about 20 years, maybe 30, could be even 50, the people are going to look back on now and say that cell phones, these iPhones are the equivalent of um, cigarettes in the back of a pocket and its addiction. And do you, I mean, do you think because of the, the exponential increase in anxiety that that ever will, something like that will happen where people actually see it as an evil? Um. I want to think that's true. Um, yeah, I want to think that's true. I wonder if we'll all just continue to be blinded by that. One of the things that I've said, uh, some folks throughout interviews I've done for this book and the previous one asked me, um, is there, are you optimistic about the future of the internet? Um, like, are, I, I watched Terminator. No. I, <laughs> yeah yeah it's the easy answer the easy answer is no for a lot of reasons like i think i think there's a lot to be pessimistic about frankly regarding like it just doesn't seem to be getting our relationship with the internet doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot better like i've seen glimmers of hope um like maybe people not piling on so quickly in as in certain areas or or things like that um but the thing that that is most encouraging to me is that so we we've been, been living in a situation in which the the adults in the room don't understand how the internet foundationally works like if you've seen any of these tech CEOs go before congress and the foolish questions that these congress people ask them are it's nothing has made me want to run for office more than watching mark zuckerberg get grilled by some senator from vermont about some inane question 
And I'm just like, there are so many more important things you could be asking right now. Why are you asking this dumb question? I'm like, they didn't, your team did not prepare you well. Now in more, a few more recent instances, I've seen better questions, but five, seven years ago, especially like following Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that with Facebook, where, where they were selling information to Russia's in the 2016 election. Um, there have been better lines of questioning, but historically like the people who should be keeping a lot of these like companies in check and, and protecting young people, frankly, just don't understand social media at all and are not equipped to protect their kids and grandkids who are suffering the negative effects. So in a few decades, a couple decades, people my age, your kids will be eligible to maybe be running for office or having other positions of authority and power such that they could um, regulate these companies a little bit. Now, I, like, I understand a lot of people, especially Christians, are like not particularly a fan. When I say the word regulation, they get all tense, you know, and it's, it's like uh, government regulating social media. Isn't that like government regulating speech? And it's like, okay, we're going to have to figure out the, the whole free speech social media conversation is an incredibly important one. And um, I think we need to be really careful about letting people just do whatever they want on social media in the name of free speech and just like, and not being willing to restrict social media at all in the name of free speech, particularly use. Like I saw recently uh, it's uh, Montana. Is it that is giving an age restriction on TikTok yeah, or something yeah. like that or, or social media in general, Utah, I think as well as giving us a 16 year old uh, restriction on social media. I mentioned something about that, like 16 years of age or something like that. Yeah. Uh, a yeah, a few state legislatures are trying to say basically until you're 16, you can't use social media without whatever permission. And I think like, I love the heart of those ideas. Um, I think it's impossible to enforce. I don't know how anybody's going to enforce that unless the platforms get involved. Um, but I think my hope is that basically parents and grandparents and people in po positions of power that could be reigning in social media platforms today have never had to experience the very harmful oh, this, this effects is of where social I, media. You've delved into this ethical issue. It's not to me, it's, it's, it's more than free speech because of what the dopamine is doing to the brain. It's actually a chemical thing. Oh, sure. And, and I, well, but this also goes into kind of like the Henry center for bioethics um, in, in Deerfield. You were talking about yeah. that earlier where you even get into the cloning aspect. And I know I'm bringing in something totally different. The question is, is not, you know, and, and my editor loves to say this all the time. He, he always loves to quote Jeff Goldblum from um, Jurassic Park. You know, <laughs> you, you asked if you could, but you never asked if you should. Yeah. And I think what you're seeing now is more of the cigarette conversation and even the cloning. Is this something that we do that it's harmful at the basic psyche of who we are? That yeah. It's not necessarily about free speech. This is about behavior and yeah. orders. and dis I mean, this is, this is a thing that yeah. we've not seen in our time. And, and, and of course it has to take time to catch up. And I agree that like, I think that we need to be willing to give up our right to free speech on social media in a lot of ways because of the, the negatives that's like that, like the negatives of, of re reeling in social media are far are, are definitely worth are worth it to me. Like, even if you feel like you're giving up some sort of free speech, like I think we need to, we need to be willing to give up some of our perceived freedoms to 
reel in social media. To quote another Jurassic Park line along these lines, the problem is, and this is where I feel like this kind of thing is just really hard to do, is life finds a way. Uh, as they say in Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. I believe, life finds a way. If you could put all kinds of regulations in, and I think people are just always going to find ways to get around Wait, you it. You mentioned like, in the I, sexuality chapter where you said you could just put all the restrictions yeah. you want, but you have to deal with the human heart. That's right. That's what, yeah. And that's really like, like you have to be 13 to use social media apps. Virtually every social media app requires you to be 13 to sign up. You know how many 10 and 12 year olds the use these darn apps? Well, like, yeah. Like, so what are you going to do? Like, you're going to like serve a parking ticket to a 12 year old for using Instagram? Like, what's going on? Like, how are you actually going to do this? I just, verification system. Yeah. Like, you can make like an ID. Right. Right. For a 13, like, yeah. It's like, yeah, that's, are you that gonna, makes it tough. Yeah. And then you talk about privacy. Gosh. I mean, you yeah, talk about oh, privacy yeah, yeah. issues. So yeah, like I'm, I'm in favor of all kinds of protections, especially for young people. Um, however, I think practically the outworkings of that get very sticky, very fast. Well, even in the um, free speech part that you just mentioned, because I know people yeah. are going, wait, whoa, don't, don't go there. But the question then becomes if, if my speech is limited, I am following the trajectory of somebody's communicating something. And I need to have the ability to be able to speak against that big tech, if you will, because it's trying to convey meaning, whether we realize it or not. Everything's conveying some type of meaning because it's not yeah. amoral. Right, exactly. And so I think the, yeah. Um, so do I think phones will be like cigarettes? I hope we view them that way. I just don't know if our view of them is going to get f- negative fast enough. Like, I think it may take time. And, but I do, I'm hopeful that the teenagers and 20-somethings who are alive today doing their thing who have experienced the scourge on mental health that social media has of always having the hallway in your pocket, they will be in positions of power in a matter of a couple of decades to maybe do something about that. And I think part of the reason their parents and grandparents, those generations, those ages haven't been is because they haven't experienced it firsthand in the same way. A lot of these younger people have. And my hope is that those younger people who are now 14 to 24, when they're, 44 to 64 actually do something about that. When you were talking in the book, you, you referenced a study that was shelved that had been done on Facebook. Describe that for a moment because that was eye-opening. Yeah. So this is uh, pulling back in the mental library, Wall Street Journal in 2020. Um, this was before their big Facebook papers, but it ended up being a part of their big Facebook papers report. The Wall Street Journal in 2020 reported on Facebook's internal research team, I'm paraphrasing and may get a couple details wrong. So don't sue me. Just go read the actual thing. (laughs) Um, Facebook's internal research team, I want to say around like 2017, did a study to figure out what kind of content performed best on Facebook, what kept people on Facebook the longest. And their internal, Facebook's internal, not outside independent, internal research team came back and said, effectively, they had a whole PowerPoint deck that the Wall Street Journal got a hold of and published, said negative content, controversial content, content that ignited heated debates, performed the best on Facebook and was floated to the top in the algorithm. Basically, people were more likely to see conflict-oriented content than more chill content, Mm -hmm. if you will. And people stayed on Facebook and used Facebook longer 
if they engaged negatively with content than if they engaged positively with content. And I think the internal research team said that may not be good that that's, that that's the case. And Facebook said, okay, thank you internal research team for reporting that we'll decide whether or not that's good. And they put it away and didn't do anything about it for some period of time. And it was never known until the wall street journal, it was leaked to the wall street journal a number of years later. Facebook says, we actually, we did change things. We, we changed it this way, that way. I mean, this was like, like if you think of the algorithm in like different points are assigned to different ways you can react to posts, right? You can react with like a frowny face or a heart or like a frowny face was giving, like giving a post three points and a smiley face was giving, or a like was giving a post one point. And it's so like, if you think of it, like a post gets ranked in an algorithm based on how many points it gets, it's more likely to be toward the top of your feed if it has a lot more points. And it was getting more points if people were reacting more negatively to it than if they were reacting positively to it. And so they were basically, Facebook knew that negative content kept people on platform longer. And so they kept floating negative content to the top to keep people on platform longer at sowing division and, and conflict and things like that. And that's a problem for like a hundred reasons. Um, like that gets me more fired up than like these platforms favoring one political ideology over the other, because like, this is bad for everyone. <laughs> like this is bad for everyone. Um, like people talk about the biases of social media platforms and they often mean political. And I'm like, but this is like worse. Like this is far worse for everybody. Um, and I think there, there are a number of points to derive out of that. I think a couple are, we need to remember that these platforms exist to make money, not to serve us. Like we are not the customer, the advertiser is the customer and we are the, the data product. Um, and so like, if you ever get sentimental or feel good about like, Oh, I just love Twitter. Or I love Instagram. They don't love you. Like they don't like you. you they don't feel anything. You are fodder to them. Like you're nothing to them. Um, your data is everything, but you are really nothing. And, and the other thing is um, beyond, beyond recognizing that we, you know, we don't really matter. Secondly, we need to recognize that these social media platforms are, de are designed to deliver us more deeply into our mm. desires, not deliver us from our desires. And a lot of us desire conflict more than we desire peace. And these platforms are designed to like, oh, you like conflict? You clicked frowny face? Well, let me give you more frowny face content. Oh, you, you commented something nasty on that post from that political rival? Well, now you're just going to get more of that political rival's content. Um, like we, these social media platforms are sort of like, recursive like feedback loops and a lot of times that's talked about like you know they deliver you more into your biases yeah but sometimes they can just like deliver you more into sin like into like destructive whether it's like lust like you look at one picture of a woman who's dressed in barely any clothing and they just give you a bunch more of them or you engage negatively with a political ideology and they just deliver you more of that so it makes you more mad like these things are delivered are, are designed to deliver us more deeply into our desires not deliver us from them. And even though we're Christians and we're hopefully leaving our fleshly desires behind, we're all aware that we're not. And, and, and we can sometimes get caught up in these things. So I think it's important for us to recognize that these platforms are not in favor of us. They're not out for our good. They're out, they're out for our eyeballs and the ways they get our eyeballs are often not for our good. Mm. These are so many different concepts that we're dealing with and struggling with every day. This is where I think the rubber meets the road of our Christian expression. 
one of the things that I think your book does, it brings a lot of language, uh, identification, awareness. I, I remember a seminary professor telling me years ago, part of our job as ministry leaders is to give people the language to know how to name their world, in essence, to know what's good, what's bad. And I think you've done that. You've done that quite well. It was very interesting to read your perspective on so many different things. And I immediately, as I was going through the book, I started to ask myself a lot of my own questions, knowing why do I, why am I driven? Why do I do that? Why does the internet do that? Even in mention of the desires that it seeks to cultivate, there were some videos that came up in one of my news feeds that were just shocking. And I, I immediately reported them. And, in, and it says, okay, ban, blocked it, did that fine. Then it gives me more. And I went, wait a minute, I'm trying to get rid of that, not less. But the fact that I, I, I had some type of interaction with it, they wanted me to do more. And it, as you said, the self-fulfilling prophecy and more and more outrage, which really makes you angry, as you said before, because you know you're being manipulated at the depth of, of who you are. One of the things that we like to do when we close the show is give people what we call the water bottle for the week. We are Apollos water. We want to water the faith of people. What is one concluding water bottle that we can give to people for them to sip on this week? The, um, the end of the story has been written. Um, the battle's already won. I think for, if you're listening to this as, parent who maybe you know your kid has an unhealthy relationship with social media or even you do or you're a community group leader and you know that people in your community group are caught up in things on social media habits addictions that they shouldn't be or you're a pastor and you feel like man my church like folks are just getting a lot more feisty and challenging my authority in my church than they used to and you're beginning to wonder is this because they're on social media a lot and they're fighting on social media and then spilling over into my church i've heard that story a lot if you find yourself in this sort of desperate spot in any of those places, um, I say at the opening of the book that social media is the most powerful discipleship force in the world today. And I think that uh, because the average adult spends two and a half hours a day on social media and we don't spend two and a half hours a day doing anything else except sleeping and working. Um, so I do think that's true. However, I think the Holy Spirit though not a force, is a much more powerful discipleship force in himself than even social media. And that God can overcome social media um, because he created the people who created social media. Remember, social media is not, as much as it feels this way, social media is not some alien technology that was you know, dropped onto us from elsewhere. This is why I have no problem claiming that social media is bent toward evil and sin and not a neutral force because humans who are broken and bent toward sin built social media. <laughs> um, we, we wrote our biases into the code. And so um, I think if you are needing a word of encouragement, no, you don't need me to tell you. It's kind of scary out there sometimes, especially with regards to social media and how we feel like people are being discipled by social media more than anything else. But the Holy Spirit can overcome that. Working through you in your faithfulness, in your leadership, in your discipleship of others, um, the Holy Spirit can use 30 minutes in a week to overcome two and a half hours a day um, in your coffee date that you have with that friend in your community group. The Holy Spirit can use that to push back against the lies those people have maybe been fed by their Instagram feed for two hours a day over the course of last week. Um, and so while I, I advocate in the book for fighting time with time and how 
intensive discipleship and spending a lot of time with people is very important. I do think the Holy Spirit can work in very short periods of time and inside conversations after church and after community group or whatever else. But, but we need to get ourselves in the room with people. I think we need to not be sucked into the idea that we can do things that we compete with online influences with more online influence. I don't think that's the right answer. I think we do have to fight time with time, but I don't think we fight social media discipleship with Christian content on social media discipleship. I think we do it by getting people in person and, and it, doing embodied ministry together. Um, and I just want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit can work through your work. Um, you don't have to try to do it on your own. And, and the God who made the people who made social media is the God of social media. And so um, you can trust him to disciple your people, even when you feel like you maybe are incapable of doing so. Mm, that's a good word. Chris, thank you for coming on the show. I do recommend the book. I give it an Apollos Watered recommendation. I actually want to try to get a box and pass this out to other people. I think it's that helpful. I really do. Um, and I, I, I did enjoy it. I found it to be very insightful. I found it to be very uh, biblically faithful in helping us to discern this very difficult thing and keeping us grounded. But well done. Well done in writing the book. And and may God continue to use this to bless, bless, use it to bless his people and his kingdom for their glory and his joy, or his glory and their joy. <laughs> All right, brother, thank you so much for coming on Apollos Water. That was a lot of ground we covered today. And as you can tell, Chris has wrestled a lot with the complicated world of social media, and it is complicated. You and I both know this. I have no doubt that there are quite a few of you saying to yourself right now, I don't know about all of this. It's a little overwhelming. But I think it's a good thing. I think we all have to wrestle with this because we really do need to see how it's affecting us. I mean, the data is clear. It is affecting us. It's affecting our kids. It's affecting us. It's affecting our daily rhythms, how we look at ourselves, what we go after. I mean, it just continues to try to form us. And as Christians, we can't simply just stick our heads in the sand. We have to be able to push back. And we have a few options available. Of course, we can simply get off of social media. And there are some who have done that. Or we can identify what it is, identify how it's affecting us, and then put the safeguards and the counter practices in place so that we might be able to use it properly. You know, it's easy to think that technology and social media are just simply tools, but they're far more than that. It's not amoral, but it actually conveys meaning and affects our state of mind and heart, which is a very moral thing. Thinking about the ways that social media works and how it is working on us is an important first step in taking ourselves and our spiritual formation back. I personally loved how Chris entered the interview. The Holy Spirit can do more in half an hour than social media can in two and a half hours. It's true. But we have to let him. We have to want him to form us. The call to in-person relationships, whether that's in church on Sunday or participation in small groups or simply conversations in person and shows what it means to do life together. All of these are just simply ways in which we combat the malformation of a world that is trying its hard to deliver us into and not from our desires. That's a good word. 
And as I said, I really do recommend the book. It'll be a great help to you. And by the way, are you receiving our newsletter? Click the link in your show notes and become more engaged in what God is doing in and through Apollos Watered. I want to thank our Apollos Watered team for helping to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on a roll.